This is episode 97 of the Walking Closer podcast, titled Brokers, Benefactors, and Roman Centurions. Uh, this is part seven of the series that we're doing, Challenging Perspectives. And man, I hope you are enjoying these as much as I am creating them. I just think that this is some good stuff. Now, in this episode, I'm going to present a biblical narrative that brings together some of the things we have been talking about. So, without further ado, let's get into it. As I mentioned in the last episode, if you if you lived in the ancient first century biblical times, um, and generally speaking, if you were poor, really, there were essentially two ways of getting things done when you could not do them on your own. You could, first of all, rely upon favors from other people who were well, among your peers, those who fell into the same social ranking, those who um, were considered equal to you. And if what you needed was beyond the scope of what your peers could provide, you would then seek out a patron, someone who would be social, socially superior to you. But they would also be someone who was willing to take you under their wing and provide favors for you. And in return, you would offer well, your loyalty as as their client now there was sometimes another component to this like another party another person who would be able to connect you with those who were socially superior and the person was considered a broker you see connecting with a patron on your own might be like a difficult thing you can imagine uh you're trying to connect to someone who is socially superior to you someone you, you're trying to find someone who's going to really be willing to give you the time of day to listen to your needs and see if this is a relationship that could work that, that could be mutually beneficial and so you can imagine how this might be a difficult thing for you to do and you would need someone who was well connected someone who knew someone that they could put you in touch with uh, someone who could help you get what you were wanting and in this way, these brokers were like patrons. And again, this was most often associated with what we call personal patronage, which dealt with individual people, individual clients. And we talked a lot about this in the last episode. And again, as I mentioned in the last episode, there was also what we called public patronage. And this played out in several different ways. But essentially, these were the super wealthy leaders who would support the community in various ways, like, say, putting on games, providing forms of entertainment, financially supporting building projects, uh, provided for community in times of, of famines and pandemics. These, these were powerful people who contributed to the welfare of the community as a whole. And these people would, would also be referred to as benefactors. Okay? So now... We have a narrative in Luke's letter, uh, his letter to Theophilus, where these things come together uh, between Jesus, some Jewish elders, and a Roman centurion. So Roman centurions uh, were legionaries who commanded around 100 soldiers. These were men who were seen as being dedicated and fearless by some, while others claimed that, well, they... They worked their way up the ranks uh, as soldiers just by simple merit, not necessarily because they were courageous. Um, but nevertheless, they were well-paid, 
and were responsible for overseeing training and commanding these men um, in, while they're encamping on the battlefield. But it does seem that at times they were sort of detached from their men and were sent off to various places on different assignments for different reasons. And uh, so with that being said, I want us to look at this narrative in Luke's letter, which is commonly referred to as the Gospel of Luke. But remember, this is a letter, a letter written to Theophilus. This is, say, part one, where part two would be um, what we call the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles. And so let's look at this letter. It's in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is in Capernaum, which was a part of a major trade route, which might indicate why the centurion is there in the first place. And the Roman presence was just about everywhere, but specifically this is an important, important place. But Luke tells us that this centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death. And incidentally, Matthew also includes this narrative in his letter, and Matthew says that this servant was lying paralyzed. So that gives you a picture of his condition. Now, the servant was highly valued by this centurion. He was very dear to him, precious even. The centurion held him in high honor and was essentially prepared to do extraordinary things to seek after the welfare of this servant. And the language that Luke uses uh, to talk about this you know, paints this picture for us. And so the centurion, he hears about Jesus, and he sent to Jesus some Jewish elders or community leaders, probably elders of the local synagogue. And he sends them to ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. Or he sends them and they essentially ask Jesus to come and heal his servant. So these Jewish elders come to Jesus and they plead it with Jesus. And in the Greek, the picture is painted that they, they, they're, they're pleading, they began, and they kept on. Hence the term pleading is used with him. Like, and they're doing this, uh, we're talking zealously, okay, with some passion. They're earnestly pleading with him, saying that the centurion is worthy to have you do this for him because he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And so they are trying their hardest to get Jesus' attention and to win his favor, to get him to do something, right? They're needing something, they're wanting something, and they're trying to get his attention, bend his ear, if you will, and get him to do this for them. Now, before I go any further, it is important to note how in the New Testament text, God is always painted as the healer, and Jesus is the broker, the one who puts people in touch with God. And so God is seen as a patron and Jesus as his broker. And this is why oftentimes you'll see after Jesus heals people that God is praised and he is glorified. And people, people didn't see Jesus as God or even divine, but as someone who was definitely connected, okay, connected with God, and he could connect as a result you with God. Well, we call that a broker. So we have this situation where the Roman centurion has a servant that was evidently special to him, but he couldn't do anything about his servant's health. He couldn't do it on his own. It was out of his control. And so he sees what Jesus can do, or he hears about what Jesus can do, and that's what he needs. But there's a problem. 
because he's a Roman centurion asking for a favor from a Jew. And who knows how that's going to go down. So look at that from the centurion's perspective. Jesus might respond with hostility and not be willing to help. Why would he help a Roman centurion? No doubt the centurion has run up against what maybe some of the local people had thought about uh, him being there or just Romans in general. Um, Maybe he was just simply aware, no doubt, of the hostility that could be there. So the centurion needs a little support, right? He needs some backing, someone who can vouch for his honorable and peaceful actions among the Jewish community. Remember, this is a guy who actually built a synagogue for this this Jewish community, and so it tells you something about him. And when he did this, he was doing a favor, showing grace to this community. He had become a benefactor to this community. And as such, the leaders of this community would be looking for ways to honor their benefactor. And in fact, part of this relationship would be the centurion's confidence that he could call in the community leaders when he needed them. He could trust that they would act in good faith to the favors that he had already shown them. And so instead of going to Jesus himself, he calls upon the community leaders in hopes that it would increase his odds of winning Jesus' favor. And so he calls upon his clients who are all too happy to oblige and return the favor to their benefactor and vouch for his honor and worthiness. And in some way, they become like brokers between the centurion and Jesus, connecting the two parties, one who needs the other. And so then Jesus goes with them. But before he gets to the centurion's house, he is approached by friends of the centurion, who have this message they want to relay to Jesus, this message from the centurion. And he he says, Do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Now, when the centurion does this, he is declaring Jesus as socially superior, which which is smart because, well, the centurion has a lot of power, right? He can broker imperial favors with Rome, but he's not native to the land, but Jesus is. And the centurion is seeing him as a powerful patron among the Jews. And so he says, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. Now, the Greek word used here for servant is an affectionate term, which can sometimes be translated as youth or you know young or boy, but it's a word that's being referenced, uh, be, being used to reference this this affectionate affection that this centurion has with this servant, uh, which further demonstrates you know how the centurion feels about this this servant, and so he tells Jesus, "Say the word, and let my servant." be healed. For I too am someone who is under the authority of another, and I also have soldiers under my authority. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And so he's essentially saying, I know how authority works. Not only does the centurion know how to wield authority, though, he also knows 
what it's like to be subordinate to authority. Because he himself says, listen, I am one who is under authority. Now think about it. When his own superior says go, what does he do? Well, he goes, and he understands the repercussions of not going. He, he gets what it's like to be under authority and how authority is used and be on the receiving end of authority. And when his own superior says come, what does he do? Well, he, he comes, and he knows the repercussions of failing to come. And when he is told to do something, he knows to do it, right? So in other words, this Syrian understands how authority works on all spectrums, on all ends. And with this statement, he is declaring his trust that Jesus can do this and can wield the kind of authority that it would take to heal his beloved servant. And here's the kicker about all of this. <laughs> I think the centurion is asking this of someone that he has never met, but only heard about. And I say that because, well, of how Jesus responds. So Jesus marvels at this. And then, so much so that he turns to the crowd and he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith, such loyalty, such dependence, such trust. Now, think about that. Jesus has been going around and doing the very thing that the centurion is asking for, right? People are witnessing this stuff happen. They have firsthand knowledge and experience of what's going on. When Jesus says these words about the centurion, it's in light of all of that, all of his former experiences up to this point with those and to, to, with whom he has come in contact with. And it's in light of how people have responded to what they saw and experienced that Jesus says this. So did people have faith in Jesus? Like, did they trust that he could do these things? Well, yeah. Yes, they did. Now, there were some, right, who did not respond favorably to what Jesus was doing. They questioned where he gets the power to do any of it, and people people really struggled. They really did struggle with how all this was possible and what they were seeing and what this meant, and some did try to discredit Jesus. But many did trust that he could do this, and these people didn't seem to be caught up in the how. They just knew he could do it, right? So what was so different about the centurion? Well, I suggest it was because he didn't need to see Jesus do it. Like, he didn't need to bring his servant to Jesus and be there in Jesus' presence when he did it. He didn't think Jesus had to even be there. He trusted Jesus could just do it, which is why he said, just say the word and let my servant be healed. And maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I almost hear some desperation with this. Like, let's get it done now. He didn't have to see any of it for himself, right? He had total confidence without seeing. And that's that's a part of what it looks like to have authority and to wield authority over other people. Like, he really understood how this worked, and the way that he expresses himself demonstrates something about his trust in what Jesus could do for him, right? He didn't have to see it himself. He, he had total confidence without seeing, and it reminds me of, of what Jesus told Thomas when he said, because you have seen, you believed. 
But blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And I think that this is the centurion. I think the centurion's faith reflects more of the, maybe the kind of faith that we have today without seeing Jesus literally be there with firsthand knowledge and being eyewitnesses of this, yet we have things we can point to and trust and entrust, right? Believe. And so for me, though, this really begs the question, like, why did he have this trust? What led him to trusting Jesus could could do this? What what was it? What was it just simply because he had heard that Jesus could do these things? Was was he told about Jesus from others that he trusted? So you see, this is what I think is going on here. I think these Jewish elders told him about Jesus. These were people that he trusted. And maybe he had such faith in the words of these clients. And if they said Jesus could do this, then he trusted that they were right and that Jesus could. And it was then, at that point, just a matter of convincing Jesus to show him a favor which from his perspective could pose some challenges considering that he was a Roman centurion. And so this is the scenario that I lean towards. I think this is what's going on, but but regardless, the centurion had something he could point to, right? That gave him reason to trust. And we need to understand this in light of the experiences that Jesus had had up to this point with doing the things that he did um, with the Jews. And so he comes across the centurion and there's a stark contrast that Jesus points out. And I think that the centurion, though, had something that he can point to, right? A reason to trust. And I know this because that's how faith works. At least that's how faith works according to Hebrews chapter 11. Plus, the scenario that's laid out, I believe, fits with the social context of the time and not so much necessarily our own, okay? So it takes in a narrative of him being a benefactor and the leaders of that community now being his clients and this reciprocal relationship that they would have with grace and faith with one another. And, and so what you see here is a narrative that plays out that relationship, okay? I know, I almost forget here. Um, notice how Luke finishes this narrative out. When these friends of the centurion were sent to stop Jesus from coming to the centurion's home, they return to the house, and what do they find? Luke says they found the servant well. And that's it. Notice that Luke doesn't, he doesn't say that Jesus healed the servant. Now, you might think that that is trivial, and yes, of course it's implied. But it's not trivial. It is in line with the image of God being the healer, being the patron, and Jesus being the broker, specifically God's broker. And this is the picture you have painted over and over and over and over again within uh, the context of the gospel accounts. Jesus is painted as the broker between clients or sick people and God, the patron who could do something they could not do on their own. Now, there are times in which the writers specifically say Jesus healed, but many times it is followed by God being glorified because it was believed that no man could do these things on their own. The narrative consistently seems to be this. Jesus was seen as a broker between God and man, or at least that's the narrative that the gospel writers are trying to paint. Jesus as a broker between God and man. Now, 
hopefully that gives you a little taste of of how this works right like how this this patron system and how seeing things from a social context and understanding more of these concepts and how they functioned on a daily basis how how the world worked for them and hopefully this is a a good example to show uh, to use to show you what is going on, right? How you can see this patron system within the context, and maybe, maybe even be a springboard to helping you see more of this in other biblical contexts as as well. And I, I really, I hope you see this because this is good stuff, man. And it, it just brings the text to life. And uh, I am planning. I'm estimating that uh, we're going to have at least another three episodes in this series. And here, here's what I'm working with. Here's some of the titles that I'm working with here. And it may change, but uh, right now, here's where I'm at. So uh, at least three more. And uh, here are the titles we're working with. Uh, one is going to be, and probably the next one, is going to be Healings, Clients, and Politics. <laughs> and then we're going to deal with Gods, plural, Gods, Enemies, and the chief benefactor. And then finally, at least possibly finally, the last one we're going to do is called Dancing the Dance of Grace. So yeah, there it is. At least three more. Hopefully, 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 hopefully this is something that is, that is, you know, very palatable to you that you're, you're, you're beginning to see some things. This is extremely helpful. I hope, I hope that it is. I hope that it is. I hope it's giving you fresh perspectives on some of the things that you see and on the narratives that are being painting in your imagine painted in your imagination as you read and as you interpret this text because at the end of the day it gives you more plausible scenarios um, that are related to the first century uh, way of life and thinking and functioning as opposed to our own especially here in the United States so be looking forward hopefully to at least three more within this series and that's what I got. Here it is. Brokers, benefactors, and Roman centurions. Race in peace, and I will talk to you soon.